0: Okay, your thumb is perfect, so here we go. I take the glasses off so that I can see. That's one of my resolutions, is to get glasses that I can see with for the first time in five years or whatever it's been. Uh, Okay, Uh, back on January 22nd. Last time I I had the date wrong. I might have it wrong again, so check it out just to make sure because I am definitely fallible. Am I operational? Okay, so we're going. I just saw you shake your head, and I thought maybe I'm... That was you so you you have the authority to shut this place down, as you know. So okay, just uh, keep in mind that I make mistakes all the time, and that might have been one of them today. Anyway, we're January 8th today, 2023, which is amazing, amazing for me, but the math is easy because I was born in 1953. so I know what's happening. I know what's kind of where I'm headed here. This is 2023, January 8th, lecture discussion number 189 on the book of Joel, Daniel Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Today is uh, cleanup on aisle uh, 188, lecture 188. I I had a big... (laughs) And I'll get into this situation that that we find ourselves in. But a few uh, lectures back... While we were buried uh, in the avalanche, that is the centuries-old uh, theological dispute: that's the superdeterminism, and then of course its opponent, which is transitory salvation. So, I, and, and I should interject that uh, one of the things I've omitted up to this point, and I'll do it a little bit today, uh, but uh, that the history of this conflict is really quite valuable, a- and you actually should. Uh, study it, it should be presented before anyone really begins to venture into the muck of it. And when you see how it, the steps that it took to get to these positions 450 years ago, uh, that becomes quite valuable. And and notice that I have not followed my own advice, uh, which is not unusual. I don't trust my advice very often. Many of the ancients, when I talk ancients, I mean before before we had... uh, uh, the Calvinistic positions and the Arminian position. So way before 450 years ago, thousands of years ago, or at least a 1,000 some years ago. So many of the ancients saw this as a paradox. And they often referred to it as the paradox of man's free will. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, 2,000 years ago, wrote that the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees all disagreed on this. And the Essenes proposed that God controlled and commanded all the events, every event. And, and if you've been following along the subject uh, with our little Cliffsidian trek here, you'd recognize that as super-determinism and our absolute predestination. The Essenes uh, then would be advocating for the incompatibility of man's free will and God's omniscient dom- dom- domination. So they would say that, God dominates and there is no free will. That's what the the Essenes would say. There's an incompatibility with it. Man cannot have free will and God have omniscience. In effect, they, they ended up saying that God decreed that he predestined sin. And the Pharisees basically agreed with the Essenes. However, even the Pharisees thought this was untenable. And so they came up with this compromise position where they saw a limited free will. And the Sadducees pretty much just avoided the whole argument and they didn't wish to isolate themselves from potential proselytes. Let me get some water here really fast. And these three, the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you know, they were the prominent theological sects in Israel. And the point, yea, a point is that this is a very, very old debate. It goes back pre-Christ. The bickering and the squabbling has been going on for a minimum of 2,000 years, and probably a great deal more than that. We have a tendency to focus on what happened 450 years ago. Well, that's a mistake. You need to really go back and look at all of the history, because what happened 450 years ago really based itself on what happened 2,000 years ago. And the fundamental questions have always been exactly the same. That being, is the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Lord God of all creation, is that, is he with those con, those characteristics, omniscience and omnipresence, is is that irreconcilable with the free will of angels, mankind, and animals? That, that is the essence of the argument. Each side picks a, picks a side. They think there's only two sides and they're wrong about that. I hope I've made that reasonably clear. Clear. Because they, they omit something, they always say it the same way. Let me repeat it: Is the omnipresence of the omniscience most of the time? It's just the omniscience; they don't even mention the omnipresence. Is the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Lord God of all creation irreconcilable with the free will of angels, mankind, and animals? Okay, that's typically how it's done most of the time. As I said, they, they eliminate the omnipresence, but but that's a mistake. And a huge mistake, because where is the omnibenevolence of God? They have set aside the omnibenevolence of God. In other words, the pure goodness of God must be considered here. The nature of God. And it must be considered, the goodness of God has to be considered everywhere at all times. You cannot omit it and have a sound position. So when you say it's either omniscience or it's free will, I ask where's omnibenevolence? So where is the goodness of God, the pure, good, absolute goodness of God? Where is it in this argument? Where is it considered? Obviously, if you discard his goodness, you have neglected. You've cast away an ingredient that can never be cast away. It can never be omitted. It's always in any discussion on the thoughts and the the purposes of God. In fact, I would say to you that it has to be first and foremost. And that is why your adorable HDRP constantly pounds away at Psalm 36, 5 through 7, because there is the goodness of God. And I, I think it's the linchpin. It's the cornerstone of this conflict. And this is why uh, Lecture 188 concluded, or I, I included, but it concluded pretty much, it brought to the forefront, I should say better, the Matthew 20 parable of the laborers and the standing idle workers. Because at the end of that parable, Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, the Word made flesh, the Creator of all things. 1st I'm sorry. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Mine just went completely blank. Colossians 1, 15-18. He says there, he does not omit the goodness of God. He would know that, wouldn't he, being God? So he has these great words great words of Christ, Matthew 20, 15. Is your eye evil because I am good? He says that to the Pharisees. This is God himself asking this question of the Pharisees. Now, does he know the answer to the question? Of course he does. Is your eye evil because I am good? Notice the I am. Obviously, Jesus Christ knows, Jesus God knows the answer to his question. And the implicit conclusion is that, yes, the answer is a rhetorical question. Yes, their eye is evil because he is good, because God is good. Now, ask why. Why are they evil because he is good? Anyway, never arrive at a doctrinal position without time and study as to the impact of his goodness. Don't do it. You will find yourself into the ditch. And that's what I believe has happened with this debate 450 years ago. The ultimate obvious question then is ultimately obvious. Is the omniscience of God and the free will of angels, mankind, and animals a paradox? Is it really a paradox? An unsolvable mystery, an incompatibility to the Lord God Almighty. Is it possible to have an incompatibility or a paradox for the the creator God of all things. The answer to me, that's a rhetorical question, right? It's, it's, it's no. Duh. It's Isaiah 55, 6-9. through nine. His way of salvation, I've said that earlier, is beyond our comprehension. You have to begin there. Now, once you start there, you have to start out by saying, I will not be able to understand this. First step, God is good. Or you want to go right, God is good and I will not understand this. Because it's way beyond my, my capability. Again, Isaiah 55, six through nine, his thoughts are not my thoughts. To repeat the magnificent context of Isaiah 55,8 through nine, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are infinitely greater than our ways. Infinitely greater. You can't be It can't be measured. His thinking is, is infinitely away from our thinking, in complexity. So that's how you have to start. No, you don't have to start there. You say, first he's good, now he's infinitely smarter than me. I think that would be obvious, but it does not seem to be obvious. And again, the context of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, this is repeating, this is clean up on, on lecture 188, aisle 188. The context is fifty-five six seven 7 of Isaiah, that which is immediately before it. Seek the Lord while he may be found, it says. Call upon him while he is near. What does while imply here? It implies something that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I'll repeat it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Well, in a sense, you're right about that. But Wilde happens to be implying that there will be a time where he is not near and a time that he cannot be found. And notice what word I use there. Let me put it on the board. Time. So, that is very interesting. But for today and I'll get into the time in a minute, we are again commanded and treated, beseeched to seek Him and to call upon Him. That's what He's doing. Hebrews 11.6, Acts 17.27, 2 Chronicles 7.14, James 4.8, Jeremiah 29.13, Matthew 6.33, Psalm 9.10. Constantly the Bible, and I didn't even scratch the surface, constantly, repeatedly the Bible is saying... Uh, Seek Him and call upon Him. And He is telling us to do that. Why does He tell us to do that? In a time structure. Can you run out of time to call Him and to seek Him? And that's just a list of few that I rattled off. The the seek call stuff. What's that? Okay, good. They repeat it. The Bible repeats it. Seek call, seek call. Trust, obey, believe. It does that too. Trust, obey, believe. It falls into the same category as seek call. Why does God request that we seek Him? That's ultimately where we're headed here. Why does He request that we call upon Him? What's the implication? He's asking us to do it. He's not telling us to do it as much. He, He does tell us to do it, but He also asks us to do it. So why? The implication is immediately... Obvious I believe our free will is not a paradox to God. It's not. So when you say that the omniscience of God and the free will of men is a paradox, you're wrong. It's not a paradox to him. It may be a paradox to you because his ways or his thoughts are infinite compared to our puny little minds. We have amazing mind capability, but compared to him it's ridiculous. It's not even mentionable. And again, Kurt Goodell shows up all the time in completeness theorems, right? It's just what he figured out theologically was amazing and mathematically, but ultimately the theology of Goodell's incompleteness theorem is is far greater in my view than his mathematical impact and his mathematical impact extraordinary, profound. Here's what he would say infinity does not have incompatibility so man's free will is not incompatible with the, with someone who is infinite therefore there is no paradox with god because he's infinite and he has completeness and there's no such thing as incompatibility to infinity and that is why deuteronomy 10:17 and romans 2:11 are so fantastic Because guess what else infinity eliminates? Remember what those are. 10.17 Deuteronomy and and Romans 2.11 say this fantastic, amazing thing. God has no partiality. That is so important in this debate. He has no partiality. Infinity eliminates partiality. Let me say that again. An infinite being has no partiality. To repeat the definition of partiality. Partiality is favoritism. It is unfairness. It's preferential treatment. It's exclusion. It's inequity. God has none of those things. Deuteronomy 10.17, Romans 2.11 are unequivocal. There's no stuttering. They're categorical. God has no partiality. And the context of Romans 2.11 is salvation. He has no partiality with respect to salvation. So it even narrows it for you. There is none or if you want the redemption, the eternal life for those who by patient continuance in doing what is good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Life eternal, Romans 2, 6-7. He has no partiality for those people. Whoever you are, wherever you were born, whatever you look like, whatever your capability, whatever your intellect, whatever, your, whatever you have, your talents, he has no partiality. You will be saved if you wish to be saved, if you will to be saved. You're involved in it. Now, how much you're involved, we can argue that some other day. But understand, you cannot eliminate the goodness of God in this debate. And for those who are self-seeking, he says both, both sides. He has no partiality for those who are in patient continuance and doing what is good. What is good? What is good is seek, call, and believe, trust, and obey Him. That's what's good. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey, do not believe the truth of Christ Jesus, but instead obey the lie and do evil, they reap judgment and anguish. That's what the Bible says. In that, what that's what comes next. Romans two eight through nine. Or comes first. No, eight through nine comes after six and seven. I got it. But glory, peace, honor to everyone who believes what is good. That's what Romans says. To everyone who believes what is good. For there is no partiality with God. Yes, sir? I, I agree completely. If, if you can't, if you don't understand that the goodness of God has to be in every discussion you have with respect to. Scripture, then you have you you can't function without it. And so to admit it on purpose, which is what happens in this debate quite often, they, they actually redefine what good is. I'll get to that in a minute. Oh yes, yes, oh no is a great answer or a great comment. So why does the fact that God has no partiality and everyone who seeks him And He is the truth. Everyone who seeks the truth, He's the truth. Everyone who seeks Him who is the truth, who is goodness personified, will be saved. That's what He says. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13 Whoever believes Christ will not be put to shame. Romans 10.11 That's a very valuable verse in this debate. Why is the fact that no partiality directly connected, welded to the infinity of God In other words, infinity dictates perfect fairness, absolute fairness. Why is that true? I'm saying to you again, he's infinite. So he can have no partiality. Why is that true? Goodell understood that really easily. Because he put the mathematic element to it. No partiality carries the meaning of equal access, judiciality, or judicially. No one is granted preference. None are seated in the fine place while others are told, you stand here. Do you remember that verse? Don't put the rich guy in the front. And don't put people in the front who say, you stand here and I get the front. Don't do that. That's partiality, right? And so now you see how it all begins to... Or sit here at my footstool, which is a position of, of insufficiency or it's a position of, of inferiority. Don't do that, he said. That's partiality. God has no partiality. Yeah, James 2, absolutely. James 2, 1 through 13, and 2 through 3 specifically condemns partiality as evil. James 2, 4, as sin. James 2, 9. Absolutely, it does. God has no evil thoughts. He has no sin. He has no partiality. When he says, I have no partiality, he is saying, I have no sin. Same thing, right? And okay, omniscience is knowing all things. All things. How much is all things? I'm going to submit that all things is all things. I mean, that's fantastic philosophy right there. Why must the Judge of all things, who is Jesus Christ, John 5:22? Why must He know all things, John 19:28 and John 21:17? And you cannot be in His. In, in, in the service of christ without knowing that he knows all things or believing he knows all things again it's john twenty one seventeen is infinity required to know all things pretty simple question i think how much is all things a lot how much does it take to know a lot how much is a lot if a lot's infinity then it takes infinity to know infinity does it not if infinity is required to know all things, if you defined all things correctly, then you, again, you'll answer immediately in the affirmative. Consider Just just think about the thoughts of God. How many thoughts does God have? How much material is he knowing about? Again, go into quantum physics. Go into the, uh, the universe. Go into just this earth. You have two trillion cells in your body. Two trillion. How many beings have that many cells in them? And he knows every one of those cells, where they are at all times. See, we we cannot know where anything is. It's probabilistic. We have probability. God does not have probability. That's exactly right. Those are his thoughts. His thoughts are extraordinary. And so in order to know all things, you have to be infinite. Do you agree? Did I convince you? I hope so. Because you have to know the thoughts of God, and the thoughts of God are infinite, and so therefore that's one of the stuff you have to know to know all things. So when you say Christ knows all things, as Peter finally did, after on the third attempt to get that question right, then he is saying you are infinite God. Okay. Psalm 45 40 verse 5. They are more than can be numbered, the thoughts of God. So they are more than the infinite numbers. Christ being God himself knows the thoughts of God. The thoughts of God are vast and very deep. Psalm two five. And senseless man arguing over something he has no business arguing over, after, after omitting the goodness of God, Senseless man does not know, nor does the fool understand this, Psalm 92.5. The infinite judge of all things must know all things in order to do what? To judge, absolutely right. He has to eliminate all prejudice. He has to eliminate all injustice. He has to eliminate all partiality in order to be the judge. Will anyone whose destiny or destination ultimately is a lake of fire be wrongly condemned? No. Why not? Because he has no partiality and he's infinite. And so he will come to the absolute correct judgment. Can't help it. It's it's baked in the cake, if you wish. Infinity precludes unlawful, unjust conviction. We have all kinds of unlawful, unjust convictions in man's courts because there is partiality. And you have to recognize that partiality will lead to error. Christ will have no error in his judgments. Omniscient, Omniscient infinity, and that's a redundancy, results in a complete, perfect trial. Flawless. All the evidence is known. All the evidence is presented. Nothing is left out because God has no partiality, and that means God is infinite. Infinity will eliminate partiality. Let me repeat that. John 9:35 through 8. 30, I'm sorry, 35 through 38. Jesus asks the healed blind man, "Do you believe in the Son of God?" He said. Now, he's healed him from blindness. Do you believe in the Son of God? And the blind man was blind, right? So he didn't know who healed him. And so he says, Who is that that I may believe? And Christ says to him, It is he who is talking with you right now. And so that man looks at Christ and says, Lord, I believe. Do you believe in the Son of God? Why does Christ ask him that? Again, everyone, Romans 2.10, who believes will be saved. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13, Galatians 3.6, 3.9, Genesis 15.6. Go on and on and on with those verses. I get scratch the surface. Finally, for this little section that I'm doing to introduce the actual lecture, how am I doing for time? Oh, I'm screaming along here. Here's the, uh, there's an equation here. Because why? Why is there an equation? Because there's always math. Always math. We have to have math. No partiality necessitates infinity. Partiality is evil. It's evil thoughts. It's sin. What then results from this? What is the resultant? Where did I head? Does partiality equate, is it equal to predestination? Because if you come to the conclusion that partiality and predestination are the same, well, where are you now mathematically? Does partiality equal predestination as predestination applies to salvation and condemnation? That's my question for today. Is partiality horrible and dreadful? Absolutely, James 2.9. Absolutely it is. Is pre-selection of the favored partiality? Yes, it is. Is the predetermining of of the doomed? Is that also partiality? Yes, it is. Is the Lord God of creation a preselector? Is He preselecting? Is He a predeterminer? If you say yes, then why did He install time? And you're hopefully you're going. What? What does time have to do with free will? Remember, he said, while the time is near, while I can be found. The Jewish-French philosopher, he, he was, oh my goodness, one slipped through the, the system. Let me see who it is just in case. Oh, she got it. That Lori has lightning fast reflexes. You should have seen her play softball. Run the bases. Why did he install time? Does time have something to do with free will? What do you think is the answer? Well, yes, it does. And again, the Jewish, and he's a Jew, and fantastic French philosopher Henri Bergson, He confronted Albert Einstein's determinism in 1922. That's why the history is so important for the church, to read the history. Einstein dismissed Bergson's arguments on the basis that Bergson lacked expertise in the field of physics. Didn't know enough about physics. Can't argue with me. I'm Einstein. You don't know enough about physics. Einstein, however, was deficient in philosophy. And specifically the implications of time on free will and consciousness. Einstein understood that time was derived out of a consciousness. But he didn't understand free will and time. Bergson wrote Time and Free Will. He actually wrote a book called Time and Free Will in 1889. It was his doctoral thesis. Einstein uh, might have been aware of Bergson's thesis, but it's unlikely that Einstein had any grasp of the significance of time and free will. Einstein and Minkowski are known for their combining of time and space, as most people are aware or what, we call, what? What do we call that today? Yes, we call it space-time. That's Einstein and Minkowski. Bergson saw that as wrong. Carelessness. Poor thinking. Insignificant. Insufficient. He insisted that time was intended for free will. Now, did God make time for free will? Is that the reason he did it? Is Bergson right? And you might recall that I asked in 188, that's why we're still cleaning up aisle 188, how is time a great sign for, from God? It's a great sign. How is it a great song, sign? Is Bergson correct that its time was intended for free will? Obviously, the first approach to this question is to ask if the angels had experienced time. Did they? When did they experience time? Okay, but we're going to get into some really interesting things, I hope. Why? How does a conscious mind experience time? And what is required to recognize time? Do you have to have free will in order to recognize and understand time? Ultimately, is where we evolve. We see Scripture begin this subject in Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 2:1, the seven days. In the beginning as Dave points out. In the beginning is a what? It is a time reference. The beginning of what, though? Is it the beginning of the creation of the angels? What is the beginning? Genesis 1:16 through 19, God establishes the two great lights to rule over the day and the night. The light and the darkness. The light and the darkness are demonstrating a timepiece. As you heard me say many times, the clock. We are completely aware of clock time, but Bergson, Bergson, I'm sorry, focused on conscious time. He said no, clock time is not the same as conscious time. So. Was Genesis 1, 16 through 19, the fourth day, was that the beginning of clock time? Yes, it was the beginning of clock time. We now had a clock keeping time. And as much as I'd like to devote the rest of this lecture, the rest of my time in this lecture, to time, I'll stop here. I'll shift to something just as interesting. And that would... Well, we're trying. Okay? I'm going to set time aside. But I want you to start thinking about time again. I keep bringing it up because of how valuable it is doctrinally. And how ignored it is. Have you ever heard anybody, Dave, you're in this battle all the time. Have you ever heard anybody say free will in time? No. Why not? Bergson did it in 1922. Why not? They don't know what they don't know and they don't care what they don't know and that's a problem. At least know something about what, what, what this subject really entails. It goes all over the place. And I'll prove it. We're going to shift to the mandrakes. So now we have time and now mandrakes. Mandrakes. Time and mandrakes. Mandrakes. I should put mandrakes. I received an email thingy from Big John from Pennsylvania, who is—he's a relentless Bible scholar. He's absolutely amazing, and he was surveying the mandrakes of Genesis 30: 14 through 24. And I wrote him back a little email thingy saying, "How you know the mandrakes are fantastically interesting." But they're also about time and free will. Almost everything in the Bible is. That's the problem. And I'm familiar, I got familiar with mandrakes a while back, but more specifically because I have a grandson named Asher. And that's Genesis 30.13. Asher's right there with the mandrakes. Genesis 30 chronicles the competition between Rachel and Leah. The great wrestling, it is called. So Leah and Rachel get in a wrestling match and they go for it. Now, it's so interesting that Jacob also was in a wrestling match, right? So all of them, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, have been in a wrestling match. Leah calls it a great wrestling match. She's in a fight, boy. She is fighting and Leah is fighting back. And so it's an interesting time. The Bible says that Rachel was loved but Leah was slighted. Now some of your Bibles will say unloved, but that's not, not correct. Leah is slighted. The Lord God saw that Leah was slighted and God got in the middle of the wrestling match. Now you've got to ask some questions. Why is he getting in the middle of this? But he is. It must be what? This wrestling match must be what? For God to get involved. Something just went Pow. Why would he get involved in a wrestling match between two women? I would not get involved. I would go like this. My thoughts are not like his thoughts. The Lord God saw that Leah was slighted and he opened Leah's womb. And Rachel was barren. So he opens the womb of Leah, but Rachel remains barren. What is that? It's not my pen. If it does it again. No, it's not. And we haven't used the wood stove for a while because of the snow load on the roof. We don't want icicle. Whatever that is, it's worrisome. Where was I? Only a professional could remember where he was. Leah was slighted and God intervenes and he opens Leah's womb and Rachel was barren. Key question, why were these two sisters wrestling? What was the prize? What were they trying to win? It reached the point of concubinage. In other words, the concubines got involved. Uh, Bilha, Rachel's handmaid is involved and in, in, in Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. And the score for those keeping score is Leah's team six and team Rachel one as of Genesis 30 for 13. So that's the score. Leah is winning 6-1. to one. A wrestling match, that's, that's domination. Then Reuben, the firstborn, he found mandrakes in the wheat field. Genesis 30-14. And Rachel wants these mandrakes. She wants them. She's willing to negotiate for these mandrakes. Why does she want the mandrakes? Why does Reuben go get them? He finds them. We'll get to Reuben in a minute. Well, the obvious answer, immediate answer, is that Jacob had something that they're fighting over. Jacob has it because they're fighting over who will have the most kids with Jacob, right? And if I can't have a kid, well, my handmaid will have a kid. and my con- his concubine and I'll make my concubine and you get your concubine and you try to... Well, they are at war. And Reuben finds mandrakes. And war just intensifies. Rachel wants those mandrakes. Uh, and as I said, Jacob has the blessing. That's what he's got. Genesis 27, 27 through 29, Genesis 27, 37 through 40. And the blessing is what? What is the blessing? If I ask you what the blessing is, what would you say? I'm going to say it's a person. It's the blessing. So how is the person, how does it come through Jacob? Jacob has the blessing. Does the blessing come through Jacob? And then what we're talking about here is the seed of of the woman, the God-man, Genesis 3.15. So the women are fighting over who is, the, who is going to have the blessing, the seed, who is going to have the Messiah, who is going to have God. And Reuben finds the mandrakes and he runs back. He's six, about six years old. He's going to come back with the mandrakes and who's he going to give them to? Oh yeah, he's going to give them to Leah. Leah's already ahead, six to one. How, how's... How's Rachel doing right now? She's getting wiped out. So she negotiates. Leah says to her, I'm sorry, Rachel, yeah, Leah says, give me the mandrakes. And Leah says, well, you've taken the husband from me. What? You've already taken the husband. And so Leah says, okay. Rachel says, okay, I'll let you lie with Jacob, but I get some mandrakes. What are mandrakes? Again, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll skip ahead. The mandrake in those in those days it was a plant, flower, root that had fertility influence. And Rachel is barren, and so this is a she's hoping this will open her womb. Now, what's the problem with her logic? What are they fighting for? They're fighting for the blessing, and God has already been involved with Rachel. I'm sorry, with Leah. So, what's, your, what's the issue here? You're going to go and get a drug, and I'm going to win. I'm going to. We're fighting for the seed of the woman. We're fighting for the savior of all things. And I'm. My plan is, I'm going to go get some drugs. I want you to think about the logic and how God might have have how He would have considered that idea. When you decide to study. Genesis 29.15 through Genesis 30.24, you're going to recognize certain themes. The the obvious one, the opening one, is the, uh, I'm sorry, the beginning one, is the opening of the barren wombs. And that's the most significant one. God is going to open barren wombs. How many times in the Bible does he do this? The Lord God Almighty repeatedly and supernaturally intervenes with barren women. Why? Why does he do it? And he makes them barren and they can have all the mandrakes they want. It won't matter. He's running the show. You can wrestle and fight and scream and yell and get this concubine and give that concubine and do all you want. I'm running it. Now, some might think that that is predestination. But I would say to you, look at the wills of these people in this fight. Now, the Lord God Almighty repeatedly Intervenes with barren women. We have to know why that is. And most commentators present six barren women in the Old Testament, beginning with Sarah, and then they had, they take, they think Rebecca, and they're right about that. And then Rachel and Hannah, and uh, next the mother of Samson, and that one's unnamed. We don't know who she is. And then we have the great woman of Shunem, and that's the Shun- Shunamite woman. And I'm thinking, they, so they get the six right there, and they think that's plenty, and they're wrong. Because I'm going to say, well, we got John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, right? And we have, obviously, the one that is going to win. We have Mary. So we have Luke 1, 5 through 7. You've got to include that. And you can make a case for Leah because of Genesis 30, 17 through 20, but they don't always do that. But she's in there. And they all share God's direct involvement. And the obvious, obviously, would be Mary, Luke one thirty-five. That's where I have the hovering of the Holy Spirit, which is the same as the hovering or the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1.2. So the mandrakes have something to do with Genesis 1.2. And the seed of the woman. The point is, yea, a point. This barren theme in Scripture is absolutely stunning. It's Genesis 3.15. It is without dispute the origin of the barren woman mystery. Therefore, the mandrakes are tied to the greatest of all mysteries, as I just said the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 3.16. God was manifested in the flesh, God and flesh come together. Now, that cannot be understood justified in the spirit what does that mean God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit this is the greatest mystery of all mysteries seen by angels oh my gosh seen by angels I cannot stress this as much as much as I should let me add some exclamation points Okay, I didn't do a good job. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. The greatest mystery has the word believed in it. Received up in glory. So let me repeat it. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached amongst amongst the Gentiles. Believed on in the world, received up in glory. Why is seen by the angels before preached to the Gentiles? There's an order to 1 Timothy 3.16. Seen by the angels before preached to the Gentiles. Why are the Jews omitted? They're not in there. The greatest mystery of all time that no one could ever solve does not have the nation of Israel in it. Why not? And the world believed. The world believed. And again, Deuteronomy 10.17, Romans 2.11, God has no partiality. That explains why he preached to the Gentiles. He has no partiality. The Jews thought he had partiality. The Jews thought they were the only ones saved in all of human history. They were wrong. Who else thinks they're the only ones saved in all of human history? Who has that same view? And they're not in the mystery of godliness. which means that 1 Timothy 3.16 is upholding free will because there's no partiality. How did the adorable HDRP get from mandrakes to free will? That's what you're thinking. Whenever God does something or says something, prepare yourself for infinity. 1 Timothy 3.16 is the ultimate depiction of infinity alongside of Genesis 3.15. Seen by angels undoubtedly is important here. Manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels. So when you see those seen by angels, undoubtedly that's Ezekiel 28.16. Why did he want the angels to see him add humanity to himself? Because that's what he did. He is the infinite God in what looks like a finite binder. and Of course, he's not. The infinity prevails, but again, it's undoubtedly seen by angels as referring to twenty-eight sixteen of Ezekiel and Genesis one two and Isaiah fourteen twelve through sixteen and 2 Peter 3, 18, 3, 19. Notice that God, Christ preached to the angels, but the mystery says preached to the among the Gentile. Did Christ preach to the imprisoned angels? Yes, he did. Now. Assuming the hypothesis that Calvinistic determinism presents, so I'm going to allow the hypothetical for their view. I'm going to pretend the theory is correct. Okay, if you're preaching to angels, Christ goes and preaches to angels. And he's seen by angels. And it's very important that he is seen as in a human form. The hypostatic union is seen by angels. Critical that it is. So what am I going to ask? If he's preaching to angels, according to the Calvin's position, that the angels lack free will. They don't have any will. Everything's predestined. And so that means that every thought is preordained. If you're preaching to somebody, why are you preaching to them if they're preordained? But he does it. It's a futile endeavor if, you, if they don't have will. Makes no sense. They, were, they are confined by automation. The angels are. If they have no free will, as Calvin's, as a hyper-Calvinist believes, then the angels are are confined by automation. Why would God testify, preach to, as to the solution to sin in in to inanimate robots? He is the solution to sin. That's what he does. He goes to the angels and he says, "I have defeated the lie of Satan. I have destroyed this position." I am the solution to sin, and he preached to the angels, the demons, if you want to think of it that way. But he calls them angels, doesn't he? Because they are, fallen angels. Why would he testify that he is the solution to sin, to inanimate robots that he pre-programmed? And again, the Satan position is the robot android position. He's always said from the, from the Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel twenty-eight that there is no free will; that we're automatons. Angels have will, uh, or do not have will either, is what he would say to them. He said to every one of them that way. Now, some people will say that the angels have will, but uh, humanity and animals do not. They try to dodge it, but you can't dodge it because Satan has this position, and you know he spread it among every angel he could talk to. Okay, my, my question becomes, where is the absolute goodness Where is the omnibenevolence? Is your eye evil because I am good? Let me repeat it. I am good. I am good. John 10, 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd refers to Zechariah 11, 4 through 17. That's the prophecy of the shepherds. The Antichrist is the worthless or the idle, idol, I D O L. He's the worthless shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. Matthew 20:15 ties itself to John 10:11 through 14, through Zechariah 11:4 through 17, and that's a common pattern in Scripture. The Old Testament Hebrew blends with the New Testament, actually becomes bridges, and you can see New Testament verses bridge to other New Testament verses through the Old Testament. It's a powerful evidence of the of the authority of Scripture. The point for today, yea, a point. Is that God says clearly he is good. I am good. The I am, Exodus three, two through four, three fourteen, the I am that I am, declares himself to be good. I am good. My advice would be to believe that. Believe him when he says he's good. Don't put anything, don't put partiality on him because that's sin. Trust him. Romans eight twenty eight, Psalm nine ten, Proverbs three, five through six. And yes, I am familiar with the argument from the Protestants who seek to redefine good. As, as, and they include predestining the majority of humanity to condemnation, including children. They call that good. They will. They'll it to your face and say, that's all good. We don't know how it's good. We, but it's good. It must be good. Can you not look at it and see that it is dreadful and horrible? That, that was the description as uttered by John Calvin. The condemnation of children is not just dreadful and horrible, it's abhorrent. No one intellectually honest can describe that position as good. You have to fake it. You know you know yourselves that predestining children to the lake of fire is evil. You know that. But they'll do it. Note the disclaimer intellectually honest. And you've got to give John Calvin some dispensation here. He knew that it wasn't good. He called it dreadful and horrible. He said, but it's true. Well, whoa. It can't be true based on the goodness of God on the fact that he has no partiality and he's infinite. It can't be true. And if it isn't good and it isn't just and it isn't righteous, it isn't deep, uh, Psalm 36, 5 through 7, then it's not true. It can't be true. And I'm hopeful that all of you have been uh, been along for the ride these last eight or nine lectures or so. And remember my waiver clause, because I started out with a waiver clause, a disclaimer. I can answer the questions as to the validity of Armenianism and Calvinism, but do I have the time? Thanks for laughing. Worked hard on that joke. This is an exhaustive and exhausting subject. It requires hundreds, if not thousands, of verses to be analyzed. There's a 31,102 verses um, in the Bible, and I got all those verses I have to look at because almost I just every time I find one I find it. I find free will. It's, the Bible is just marinated in free will, and. Uh, and along with those 31,102 verses, I got this contribution of particle physics and theological philosophy. And they're both, all of those are compelling logical assets. Obviously, the verse is the most so. But you can look around at these, uh, at these guys, the deep thinkers, theological thinkers. What do they say? What do they believe? Pay attention to them. Study the history. I've made the statement that free will proves the existence of God because it does. How is that so? Roger Penrose, the mathematician, has been quoted as saying, mathematics is an imagined concept. That's amazing. That's fantastic. What is imagination? How does imagination work? Where does imagination come from? Imagination is an attribute that's derived only from consciousness. Penrose also said, what computers do is not intelligence. It's not. In other words, computers cannot imagine anything. They have no imagination. They don't have any intelligence. Penrose went further. He said, artificial intelligence is a misnomer. There's no such thing as artificial intelligence. It's an inconsistency. Artificial is in dispute with intelligence. You can't put them together. But we do. But you can't. Nikola Tesla is famous for saying, If you wish to find the secrets of the creation, the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. God lives there. You see, everything, everything in the creation spins and oscillates and pulsates. Everything in the creation has a resonant frequency. Everything has been set in motion by something that resonates. That would be a what, according to the Bible? That would be a voice. Let there be light. He is he is resonating, putting everything in motion there. And he's also telling you that I'm the light that's going to hit this earth. I'm the light of life. John 8.12 Everything's been set in motion by the sound of a voice. The Word. God spoke. Genesis 1.3 Christ is the Word himself. It's personified. He's the blessing. He's the Word. He's the truth. He's the life. All of these things are Him. John one one through four. It's critical that, that we understand that the implication of the implications of God speaking and all things begin to spin, oscillate, and resonate, or respond to a resonant frequency. All this motion, set it in motion. The Word, all things would include humanity and animals, and obviously by inference, I'm proposing that this is attached to free will and existence. Because it is. Penrose is correct. Computers have no intelligence. They can never have intelligence. If Calvin was right and he wasn't right about absolute predestination, but if he was right and he wasn't right, but if he was right and he wasn't right, then humans and animals are not intelligent. Predestination reduces mankind and animals to computers. So that it's the same as computer status. Machinery, inanimate, lifeless, pre-programmed. That describes a computer. That does not describe intelligence. Why would God create machines? Is this good to create machines that are tortured, that can feel pain, but are nonetheless tortured for eternity? No then obviously God did not create machines. If it's not good, he didn't do it. I am good. Always good. I can't be anything but good. Ironically, mankind builds machines. Yeah, more evidence that we're not machines. Robotics are not intelligence. Intelligence, consciousness must be the designer of the mechanical devices. An intelligent consciousness has to design. You can't have a device without a consciousness and intelligence. To be a living being, which mankind and animals demonstrate, I got to set aside the insect realm here really fast because we got. I was talking to Dave about that earlier. I got, uh, I got the porifera and the flatworms and the anthropodas and all of those things. But we're going to focus on phylum chordata. That's humans and dogs and goats and and birds, and horses, and things. I'll get to the other that someday. Okay, predestination causes artificial intelligence. Because if you are predestined and pre-programmed, then you are not intelligent. And that means if you're not intelligent, then you are this this contradiction, artificial intelligence. To repeat, there's no such thing as artificial intelligence. You're either intelligent or you're artificial, but you are not both. You can never be both. Okay, i got to really hurry now. Last lecture. I'm hanging in there. Last lecture, number 188. The Arminian position that our so great a salvation, Hebrews 2.3, is fragile. That's what they say. So great a salvation is fragile. Think about that. Again, that's a collision of two thoughts, isn't it? How can it be so great a uh, salvation and yet be fragile? How can it be subject to being lost repeatedly? This view is wrecked by Hebrews 6.6. I did that in 188. On the basis that Jesus Christ's crucifixion was insufficient. Because that's what they say. They have to say that. And therefore, he must re-crucify, which brings shame upon him, Romans 10.11. It is incumbent for us to know why this is true. Why does the re Is that a word? It's now a word. Why, why does the recrucification bring shame to Christ? To rephrase, did the crucifixion of Jesus Christ result in an incomplete salvation? Because that's, just, that's the Armenian position. Armenianism. Your salvation is incomplete. Obviously that's not true. And again, who do we have to thank for knowing all of these things, these wonderful things? Kurt Goodall. Infinity is always complete. Goodall is right about that. And Christ's infinity ensures that he's complete. So what does that mean about his salvation? It's complete. Well, why would you say ever? Why would you even think that somehow his crucifixion was incomplete? Finally, yay, finally, there's a finality. Yay, we all cheer, huzzah, Roo! the dog says I get food and I get to go out. Matthew 6.13, God says to in this manner, therefore pray. So, God says in Matthew 6.13, say to, he says, in this manner, therefore pray. Where where am I? I'm in the Lord's Prayer, right? And one of those things in 6.13 that is said in 6.13, half of it is, do not lead us into temptation." Let me say it this way. Do not lead us into sin. 1 Timothy 6.9 says temptation is sin. We are instructed by God Himself, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, to pray these words. Do not lead us into sin. Pray that, He says. Obviously, Matthew 6.13 refers to Genesis 3.4 because that's where Eve was tempted into sin, right? And this is confirmed by deliver us from the evil one, because immediately after that he says deliver us from the evil one. So now you see Satan sitting there right in 6.13 of Matthew. Why do we need to pray, do not lead us into sin? Now, most idiots, I'm sorry, gosh, most people will say it's because God leads us into sin. Is that good? If it's not good, then it can't be true. James 1.13 is definitive. God does not lead us into sin. He does not. Luke 22.40 is a compliment to Matthew 6.13. We pray something that will never happen. Why does God want us to pray something that will never happen? And that's the point, isn't it? You pray something that will never happen. Why is that the point? Why does he want us to pray something that never happens? Why, why does he do that? What's he trying to beat into our little stupid brains? What then of the view that God causes sin, he decrees it. That's basic Calvinism. God decreed sin. They'll tell you that over and over and over again until their face turns blue. If you believe that God predestined sin, then you naturally are going to end up exactly where Satan and the demons end up. That's Psalm 10.6 and Psalm 10.13. There's no accountability. We do not face adversity. There is no judgment because God causes sin. That's not good company. He says pray over and over again something that will never happen so that you know that it will never happen. And that, of course, eliminates your Calvinistic position, doesn't it? Oops! In the Lord's Prayer... Is the elimination of the basis of their present position. They don't get it. They'll argue. They'll fight with me. They always lose. They always do. Because again, again, I got James one thirteen. They got Luke twenty two forty. Okay, that's where we're going to shut it down. I'll I'll check if I have another page. Oh, I don't. Yay! Everybody cheered.